listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Get ready for a fresh episode of Rootbound thanks to this episode's sponsor, Mint! Every moment of this episode promises to be as cool and invigorating as those luscious leaves. Nothing is mintier than mint! Thank you for listening to this episode of Rootbound. I'm the host of the show, and my name is Steve. Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest who joins me on the show to share with us all about a plant that means something to them. And then I share with a guest about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Now, before we meet our guest today, did you know that as high as 40% of all timber globally is harvested illegally. And in places uh, like tropical countries, that number can rise to as high as 90% of timber is harvested illegally, stolen from the forest. This rather disturbing fact is something that I did not know until rather late in my life, until I started working at the organization I work at. Uh, Yes, like most podcasters, this is not the only thing I do. I do have a quote-unquote real job, and that is working for an environmental nonprofit that is called the Environmental Investigation Agency, and it's a really cool place to work. And uh, up until now, I haven't really spoke much about this organization on the podcast, if at all. There's been a little bit of hints here and there. Um, And I think that's because I was just trying to do that thing where you try to keep a personal project separate from your work. Um, But as time has gone on, it's gotten a little bit harder and harder because the organization I work for has so many connections to plants and so much of my plant knowledge and my plant joy and uh, my passion for plants comes from working for this organization. I know so much more about trees, for example, than I ever did before I started working there. I really wanted to be able to talk about experiences I had with plants and trees while working for EIA. And I also want to talk to a lot of my colleagues who are also super knowledgeable about plants have really interesting connections to plants. And so um, from this point forward, I'm throughout the show, I'm going to bring in some of my colleagues at the Environmental Investigation Agency to tell me about plants that are meaningful to them. This is still a personal project. It's not like an EIA podcast now. Rootbound still has no ads. The only ads on the show are fake. But I have this just amazing resource of these colleagues uh, who work at the Environmental Investigation Agency. So I hope over time I'm going to have a few of these uh, uh, really amazing people on to talk about what plants mean something to them. And we're going to start here with the executive director of the Environmental Investigation Agency. And we're actually not going to really talk about trees. We actually both end up talking about uh, some invasive species. Um, But we'll get back to talking about trees and illegal logging at the end of the show. So uh, let's go ahead and meet our guest. What are your plans for the future? I thought about this quite a bit, sir. And I, I would have to say, considering what's waiting out there for me, I don't want to sell anything buy anything or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed or buy anything sold or processed or process anything sold, bought or processed or repair anything sold, bought or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. Hi, Sasha. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Hi, Steve. I'm really looking forward to it. This is cool. Uh, Wonderful. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. My plant is the multiflora rose. 
and I have a very complicated relationship with it. I, I have a little inkling of that, and I I also have some familiarity with this plant, but I think not as much as you. Let's get into it. Multiflora rose. It sounds, it sounds like a beautiful plant. I, it is a beautiful plant, I would say. I don't know. Why don't you get into it? Well, it is a beautiful plant, and um, just a little while ago, I was at my uh, family's place in Hamburg, and they had a beautiful form of it in the garden, and I, I've been so... Um, I, I have such a complicated relationship that I my instinct was to run out and cut it down and <laughs> and poison its stump with uh, deadly chemicals, but but I didn't do it because there it was um, it was okay and I just thought of that in in time, but here it's not okay. Yeah, let's talk about that. Why is it not okay? Uh, well, let's first let's just first start by describing it a little bit, and yeah. then let's get into like why it's meaningful to you. Yeah, well, the the plant, as you say, is is beautiful. It uh, is a is a shrub. It's a rose. You would recognize it as a rose, except the the inflorescence. The flowers are there. There are a lot of them, uh, as opposed to most roses, I would say, and the native ones that have sort of a single flower at the end of a stalk. This has um, a bunch of small, maybe dime sized uh, white flowers. And your typical rose kind of leaves, um, compound leaves, and uh, and then the the bush can uh, initially look quite under control, but it can over about five six years the stems will be the uh, three quarters of an inch thick, and it can be up to ten feet high and totally impenetrable as a wall of thorns. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen one that big, but I can imagine, uh, the, uh, yeah, those, those thorns are, they're pretty like small, but, uh, but that's, that's bad for thorns sometimes because you can't really see them, right? Steve, I think you've been playing with little baby multiflora roses. (laughs) Uh (laughs) A real multiflora, uh, adult has, you know, it's got chunky spines at the base but oh. you're right in its growing sort of tentacles which are the things you're most likely to come into contact with yeah they can be small enough that they'll break off and almost always when i which is at least once a week in my current fight with this plant i you know get a bunch of them in my hand you're going to get an infection because they're they're you know covered with the usual sort of stuff that gets in there so they've got a really good good defense system wow uh yeah i guess uh, yeah the ones in the edge of my neighborhood are not that big they're definitely babies <laughs> uh so let, yeah let's get into it. i think you've uh, teased a little bit why they're meaningful to you and i think it's not one of those uh, touchy feeling uh, touchy feely <laughs> meaningful things that uh, a lot of people talk about with plants i know and um i mean for for me it's touchy feely in that uh, i am taking these plants out because i feel so touchy feely about the other plants that should be there and that can be there if you remove them. Um, yeah, so the backstory of them is that, you know, they're one of the most invasive plants on the East Coast of the United States. And they were brought in way back in 1866 as rootstock. And, and I can see why they would make great rootstock, because, you know, they're uh-huh. really hardy and tough to kill. Um, and then I think in the 1930s, they really took off because then they were used as um, kind of, uh, you know, large landscaping, probably when we were building the highways and all the stuff we were doing in the 30s, um, holding holding a ground together, really, which they also do really well. 
But now um, those qualities lead to them just absolutely taking over that really critical edge habitat where a forest ends and turns into a meadow and the, the understory of the forest if it's not totally a, a closed canopy and just takes out all biodiversity on that forest floor. Wow. Yeah. So a couple of really interesting things there. I think the rootstock is an interesting one because I think that's a little bit of a unusual story for an invasive plant. A lot of times it's for, it's for food or it's for like ornamental purposes, but this is, well, I guess this is for because of everyone's just love of the rose and trying to figure out ways to make the classic garden rose more strong is why they said, Hey, this is a really robust rose. Let's use it as the rootstock for like the garden rose. Is that, is that what you mean by that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they, the, the, I would assume that was totally the use of the rootstock the same way they, they do it now with, with fruit trees and, and, and they did for, you know, wine the, the other way around where they use the American rootstock to, to save the vineyards in France, all this stuff. So, um, I, I think that's totally what it was for. Very interesting. Um, okay, so yeah, tell me about your personal like experience with this. Like, where where are you coming across this? And then uh, where are you? Yeah, tell me about your personal battles with multiflora rose. Yeah, I'm so glad you're asking. You know, this is very cathartic for me because <laughs> because my life has been really uh, very involved in this, and it's hard to talk about with with, with sort of normal people, if you will, because they just look at me with a blank uh, eyes. This is the audience for you then, because uh, we just talk about <laughs> I'm so, so grateful uh, for that. Um, well, my wife and I were super lucky to uh, be able to get a few acres outside of the city here for the first time. And it's been really interesting as, you know, long environmentalists, what that means to, to one, because all the maybe theoretical stuff one's been talking about then suddenly get concentrated into your role as a steward of a little bit of real land and um you know we we got that with some sense that there were some invasive plants to deal with but uh once you know once you're there and as a sort of uh, semi-biologist that i am i really the first thing i i wanted to know is pretty much every darn plant species there and so you start with the ones that are kind of at your eye level, you know, the stuff you see as you're walking towards the forest on the edge, as I was saying. And I was just horrified just a few weeks into to owning this land that every plant that you saw was not native. Yeah. And particularly at that level, the kind of understory, you know, first up to the first 10 feet, uh, it was uh, olive rose, um, uh, the uh, you know the um, now I'm they're, they're so horrifying I actually a blank on on some of the the, the amour honeysuckle uh-huh. bush um, the the Russian uh, olive uh, sorry autumn olive Russian olive honeysuckle bush uh, honeysuckle vine etc Oriental bittersweet and so just every green thing you see shouldn't be there and mm. and the biological sort of consequence of that is that even though it looks green, it isn't in the sense of uh, something green that is creating energy from the sun and then is passed into the food chain, which is sort of what green is supposed to do if, mm. if you have a functioning ecosystem. So none of this green, which is all the green you see, is going into the next trophic level because the reason it's successful 
is that the plant is that the insects aren't eating it. Ah. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, it's that by definition, the the reason it's so successful is that it's not being eaten, and if it's not being eaten, it doesn't go into the insects, and then it doesn't go into the birds, and it doesn't cascade energy through the whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I never thought about it that way. That's a really uh, clear way to think about the problem of invasive plants. It's it, and I, I, you know, wonder: is it just kind of a theoretical concept? Is one just uh, creating a sort of romance of of native species? But it really is about the entire ecosystem function, and and we do have data that's actually been much publicized finally about uh, total bird numbers being uh, reduced by about sixty percent in the United States over the last hundred and fifty years or so. And uh, this would be one of the primary mechanisms that, w- that would be driving that, that there's just less food um, because so many of the plants are no longer native and therefore aren't passing on their, their energy to the insects. Yeah, and the, well, the insect, the lack of insect is also a story you hear a lot about lately. Uh, like, you know, there's always those people saying when you used to, you know, back in the 80s when you would drive down the freeway, you would just have insects all in your windshield, you know. And and that doesn't happen anymore. That's like one of those. Uh, it's very anecdotal, but I think there's a lot of evidence about the the lack of uh, insect biomass as well. And totally. I always assumed that was because of like pollutant factors, but uh, lack of of forage uh, seems just as likely and probably a major factor. It's yeah. I don't know the relative contributions, sure. but I I am very convinced that that they are both a big deal. And just seeing for the first time that. The, the way that an entire green, sca- green space can be effectively a parking lot from the point of view of, of you know, subsequent levels of animals, um, there is that that has to be one of the big contributors. Um, and the you know this is the Doug Tallamy stuff that uh, is the research that's been very helpful in in understanding the mechanisms behind this and and the bird connection real quick is. Um, as many of your listeners will know, the, the almost every species of bird, the vast majority needs insects, even if you see them at your feeder and you're used to them eating seeds, for their babies, and, and mm. particularly caterpillars, and particularly moth caterpillars. And just that little perfect, you know, you can imagine if you're, if you're a baby, you know, eating a sunflower seed is not really the thing, that, that squishy little perfectly sized caterpillar to go down the gullet of that baby bird that's what brings the next generation of birds to, especially songbirds, to the world. And um, if you have a two-thirds reduction in caterpillars, you you have a major reduction in birds. Wow, yeah. Um, that is definitely something to think about. Yeah, man. Um, well, so so you, you have this property of a lot of multi-floor rows. What have you been doing about it? Well, we've got about... Three years of concerted effort and and data now on on how to try to to kill it, how to do it in a way that is um, you know more or less permanent because you don't really want a totally unsustainable uh, uh, approach here that just takes over your life and doesn't do anything. Um, you don't want to get just just depressed about it. You want to have a sense of actual progress, and we've we've found it. There there really is. Um, a way to do this and it's totally worth it and 
and that I really want to pass that on because I wasn't sure. And now after three years, we've seen just amazing comeback of native biodiversity in these areas that we've cleared. We used different methods and talk about which worked and which didn't. But um, we've really succeeded where if you do it right, the native stuff is in there. Um, I, you know, in most places, you'll see the rows. You can cut one of them. You can see how old it is. Let's say it's five years old. You've got a seed bank in that ground from five years ago of all kinds of stuff that's not able to come up. So the reward for taking it out in the right way and then seeing um, all kinds of stuff, you know, in that critical habitat, it it could be it could be ramps, you know, it 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 can be wild ginger, it can be all kinds of. Um, beautiful uh, uh, flowering plants on the forest floor that that come up if you do it right very interesting now I, I I'm, I'm blanking on this word and maybe you know it I talked about another episode but uh, that property of a plant to be like toxic to other plants nearby is that what's keeping these seeds from germinating or is it just like a shade thing or what prevents or is it just competition like what prevents the seeds from germinating? in these areas. Um, yeah, I think in this case, I don't, I think it's alleopathic. That's yeah, alleopathic. Yeah. Close to that. Yeah, close yeah. to that. Um, I think in this case, it is really the shading out the, the taking up the nutrients uh, from your neighbor thing. So mm-hmm. if you certainly the shade, you'll just see immediately. If you see one of these thickets, um, there is just nothing, uh, no light hitting the ground. Um, the roots are incredibly pervasive and you just get an immediate sense that they're, Nothing else can can grow there for those two reasons. Um, also, wildlife can't really get through there. I mean, the the seeds are eaten by by birds. You can actually eat the hops of the rose, and you know, so it'll it'll do some stuff. But um, but you can see it's kind of devastating impact immediately. Very interesting. So yeah, let's let's get into those methods. How how have you been controlling uh, this multiflora rose? Yeah. So. Um, the first approach that my wife took, because it was so satisfying in the moment, was to take the brush hog and just drive over it. And you've got a beautiful cleared area in 10 minutes and clear an acre in 10 minutes. That was a disaster. Mm. Don't do that. <laughs> um, because, um, you know, to, to the point of the rootstocks, those rootstocks are doing great in there and they are just ready to explode the next season. Um, and they will explode in all these wispy little stocks that you then can't actually control with the proper method so uh, instead yeah, also like and, a brush hog kind of doesn't work on that wispy stuff as much either i guess if you're to try to just keep going. well you can no that's true if if you have that's actually if you have an area that you are up for mowing uh, about three times a year the the literature said we we tested a little bit and it, it's consistent with that but the Literature says if you mow this, keep those stuff mowed down three times a year, in about two to three years, the roots will die. Mm-hmm. It's a lot so of work. That's, yeah. it's, it's a lot of work. It's, it's arguably fine. But for us, that wasn't really the answer because we were really interested in native stuff growing back uh-huh. and kind of native stuff that you don't want to constantly mow down. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So if you if you're into kind of rewilding and, and having a native ecosystem really grow up, um, especially if it's an understory under some trees, the native situation is not really that that just keeps getting mowed down. Uh, you got interesting brushes growing and things like that. Um, then the answer is the following: that you you go in there with really good personal protection 
stuff. So you want clothes that will protect you against against the thorns and good gloves. Um, and you go in and you with with loppers take out each bush, lop it uh, six inches or lower to the ground, and then gasp. You pull out the chemicals uh-huh. and you dab uh, the bad stuff on those stumps. Um, and the, obviously there, you know, this is, this is a big point of, of discussion among environmentalists, particularly because other folks don't really care and they'll throw that stuff all over the place. But, um, you know, I was really wrestling with as a good environmentalist that I think of myself as, to, should I be working with chemicals at all? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And um, right now, my opinion is that with this kind of application, it's the right thing to do. Um, I, I can be proven wrong. I, I tried to do the research, think about you know how long does it last in the soil and so forth. Um, where I'm using two chemicals: uh, uh, glyphosate, gasp, mm-hmm. and triclopyr, and um, they have sort of slight differences if you read about them. For example, the, the triclopyr is less likely to go from a root into another neighboring root, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Uh, but the application is that you once you've cut that stalk, you, you put it on just on the cut stalk, you know, n- not on the dirt next to it, just there. On the top of like the, that cut like the yeah yeah yeah, cross section you've got maybe an uh, you you could have an inch um and it it gets tricky when you have you know 20 tiny stalks that are an eighth of an inch thick Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but but it's actually my opinion is that's actually worth it if you have a really young plant you can just pull it out by the root especially if it's um after a rain Mm -hmm. but uh uh, normally you just cut it with the lopper and then you gotta um create this uh machine real quick which is not not tough um if you get a normal sprayer at at your hardware store kind of a pressure sprayer you know where you Mm -hmm. um, uh, pump it a bit and then you can spray it out a nozzle and you take a bit of sponge a kitchen sponge and you duct tape it to the front of the nozzle then you can just um hydrate that sponge with the chemical and dab it onto the stalks because then you're not spraying and putting chemical onto the dirt next to the stock. Mm-hmm. And, and you should add, add a bit of blue paint, uh, blue dye, which you, which you can get, uh, you know, from those same companies, those horrible companies, <laughs> uh, which, uh, yeah, it's yeah, complicated. Yeah, totally. And, and, but the dye is important because then you see where you've put it, you know, and so you can really minimize the use. But what you get there in, in defense of, of, of this method is that you can surgically take them out and leave the native stuff that might be showing itself or it might be interspersed a bit, leave it alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, for example, had a lot of spice bush that was trying oh, yeah. to compete. And, you know, you got a two-foot spice bush that is still barely alive between all of this multiflora rose. If you can leave that tiny spindly little spice bush, then next year... You, you've got the um, next generation of native stuff ready to actually take over. Because if you take everything out, then you're starting at zero. And who's going to win if everyone's at the same starting line? Mm-hmm. The invasive stuff, mm-hmm. right? And, and you know you've got a seed bank there of multiflora rose ready. 
Right. So, so the only chance you have is to surgically, in my opinion, um, based on this experience, is to surgically go in and leave every darn native little beginning of a shrub so that it's got a head start. And, and, and I think it works. So we've got multiple acres around creek beds that are now incredibly diverse native uh, understory. Very cool. Okay, that that what you said, you know, brings up something we talk about a lot on the show, and that is the philosophy of the fifteenth uh, 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 century Swiss alchemist Paracelsus, um, and he is the guy who coined the phrase "the dose makes the poison." Um, mm. And and when we're talking about you know, you know, as an environmentalist, using uh, herbicides is like you know we recoil, as you've said, gasp many times, um, but. I think what you're talking about this method is it, it has to do with the dose, right? And, and that is what's key. And we're not, we're talking about the dose is, is, is poisonous to the multifluorose, but then we're also talking about the dose to the environment. And there's a lot of times where people apply pesticides in these large, massive amounts where it gets into different places and, and that dose is different than the dose you're dealing with. And, and so that's what just made me think about that. Um, this kind of like dose on the on the like ecosystem scale. That's a great that's a great connection. Yeah, I mean, I it seems like if you 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 can apply it uh, the, in a foliate way, I think is the verb. Uh, um, and you know, then you're taking a lower percentage of the chemical and spraying it all over the leaves, mm-hmm. uh, which is an option sort of when they're all leafed out. And it might be an option when it's a real mono stand and you really have nothing to save. But, you know, then um, you, I, I would think that the insects that are, a few insects that eat the leaves, they would be exposed to the chemical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And certainly the real no-no would be um, in, I think, about June when they're flowering, right? Because mm-hmm. then you would hit the good amount of insects, actually, that use the flowers to, for, for its uh, Nectar, yeah, or, yeah, nectar and pollen. Nectar. Yeah. So, so those I think are the big, the big no-nos. And yeah, I mean, I'm just hoping that when you apply that to the, to the rootstock basically, and it just soaks up in there, that the impact that it does underneath on the soil is minimal. Um, I hope, I mean, I'm, I'm really into the, the uh, fungal life under there, you know, the microbes. And if I'm honest, I don't know exactly what's going on under sure. there yeah. having applied that. I mean, I guess, I, I don't know, I think you, you mentioned this to me once before, but I, you know, I, you know, glyphosate has a lot of issues and there's been a lot of talk about that. I, I don't know much about the other one, but they do eventually, you know, break down into, you know, component molecules. And I don't know what those are, if there's any kind of other persistent um, breakdown effects of them. But, but if, if not, like presumably something can eventually become inert. And if you're using a small enough amount of it, then, then you don't have to worry as much about you know, like if you, if you use, if you, I don't know, if you use like a 10,000 gallons of something and 1% is still around, or you use a teaspoon of something and 1% is still around, that's like the difference in scale as far as like what could be damaging, I guess. Totally. And that's why I'm going by. And I, I read some of those papers and they, they talk about it breaking down. You know, you, you worry about those papers being funded by the mm-hmm. chemical industry, but, but it is, it is real science by the looks of it. And it talks about it breaking down. And I, I, yeah, I, can't totally judge just like you say whether those uh, resulting compounds are truly inert as they say but that that is the hope 
Well, and I guess I guess there is some evidence of you seeing uh, a return of some biodiversity in your uh, in your land there. Absolutely. I mean, I the, what I see is that is that this works in terms of um, uh, it's interesting. You you can tell if you apply it the wrong way that you can suppress the whole next season's growth of stuff. So in, mm. in a few places, I have uh, applied it uh, to the foliage as opposed to the cut stump. And, you know, then you have some stuff that drips off the foliage down on the ground. Those patches were totally bare the next year. Mm. So, so nothing new came, came back. So, so you see the difference. And, um, but if you apply it to the stump, you got it. So far, I've, I see that everything next to it um, that you saw a sign of um, was vigorous and living the, the next year. Very, very interesting. Wow, that's that's a, man. It's a very complicated conversation to you know uh, talk about uh, herbicide application, but I think it's a very nuanced way you brought it up. And uh, you know, I, we we have we have this modern problem of invasive species, and so probably a modern solution is required. Right? Uh, that's really fascinating. Yeah, and it, I mean, I. W- not always, you know, we don't always have to reach the chemicals, sure. but I think, I think the, it, what's definitely required is that we have to be stewards, I think. We, we can't quite, at least in uh, these kind of environments that are so worked over, um, like the mid-Atlantic of the United States, mm-hmm. um, we can't, under those circumstances, just step back. In, if we are rehabilitating a really worked over uh, uh, ecology and, and ecosystem. And it's interesting in some places that have really been undisturbed. And by undisturbed, I mean, you know, on the East coast, maybe cut once, maybe the forest was cut down once as opposed to four times. Um, you, you, you can see really a lack of the understory being just taken over by invasives. And, and the, the, the kind of horror is the, is this one, two punch of, of us doing something to a landscape and then having this background of invasives ready to take over. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the impacts of, of the decision right now to even do forestry, even the most responsible forestry you, you could do, you, you, you got to think about it because let's say you have 10 acres and you, you want to take out uh, 10 um, white oaks because, you know, it can, make you a good amount of money and you can finance something else and, and you want to take care of your land, the, what, you have to really pay attention to the possibility that you take out those few trees, the sunlight hits the floor, and multiflora rows, Japanese stilt grass, and, and uh, honeysuckle, bush honeysuckle just take over and, you know, it's tough to get it back. Mm. So, so if it's there already, then... You know, we caused it to be there, and somehow we have to uh, get it back. And and obviously only if it's possible. But but what I'm excited about is that I can see that it really is possible to help an ecosystem back. But I guess that's why they say every rose has its thing. Just like every night. As it's done, just like every cowboy sings a sad, sad song. Every rose has its thorn. Yeah, it does. 
Well, thank you for sharing about multiflora rose with me. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? Please. Okay, so I also chose an invasive species, and it's one that I'm I'm kind of battling, but I'm definitely not, I think, to the degree you are. I probably should more, especially a little bit after my research on it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna give you some clues, and let's see how I think you'll know this one, but we'll see how how quickly you get it based on the clues. First, I'll start <laughs> with the with the uh, scientific name. What by the way, what's the scientific name of multiflora rose? Rosa multiflora. Oh, okay. I, I think yeah. you're right. That's it. Very obvious. Well, this one is not as obvious. It is Ampelopsis breviculata. I don't know it yet. All right. All right. So uh, am, am, Ampelopsis is from the Greek, from Ampelos, which means vine, and Opsis means like appearance. So it's a vine. And then Brevipendunculata means a short peduncle. Um, which I'm, is probably not very helpful as well um, to you. The um, There is a very common name, and I'll get to that in sec- a second, but I'll tell you the kind of least common name, and then maybe you'll get it, and then I'll, then I'll stop with this charade of trying to make you guess. Um, <laughs> it's a vine. Its kind of least common name is Amur pepper vine. Yeah, is it oriental bittersweet? No, no it is porcelain berry. Oh yes, porcelain. porcelain berry, porcelain berry, which which you know, and if the audience doesn't know, is also quite an invasive uh, plant from from the same kind of general region. I, I, we were talking one time. A lot of the invasives in in the part of the country we live in, you know, Eastern Seaboard, are kind of from the same general region in China and Russia, kind of that. And if you look, you know, on the globe, they're kind of around the same, you know, uh, what's the same latitudes and. And probably similar, uh, in you know, environmental conditions. But it is pretty interesting that there is this kind of like uh, predominant amount of these invasives from a specific region. Um, totally. Here. Yeah, it's very interesting. I and I always wondered, is it the same the other way? Are there a bunch of invasive American plants over in China that we never hear about? Because I don't speak Chinese. It's hard to Google that stuff. I wonder the same thing, and I just came across. Um, not in China, but uh, efforts in Poland to rewild because I'm looking up rewilding, and there's actually nothing really about rewilding on the east coast of the U.S., which is interesting mm-hmm. in itself. But there, there is a discussion about native plants. But, but so uh, in in Poland, they were talking about yeah, you know, the the problem is all these invasive species, and they listed just all the American stuff that I am currently carefully nurturing back <laughs> in my all the different species of goldenrod, particularly. And, you know, those like four species of goldenrod is what's coming back now that I've removed the multiflora rose in certain places and it's glorious. And so it's, um, it, it does seem to affect Europe to some extent, but I, I did develop a theory that's interesting what you think about this question, which is that, um, the reason it might affect Europe less over there is that you do have one giant continent that, that, and maybe the U S has been you know, slightly more protected from uh, these species uh, for a bit longer. So when they did arrive, they they could do even more damage, but I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, that is interesting because, you, yeah, you do have uh, even, even like connections between uh, Africa that's like, you know, goes all the way down to, you know, the all the way down so far. You have like transport of birds north and south. Um there's probably just a lot more churn in a larger area of like creatures and plants perhaps that like uh 
led to some some more robust species that when they got here maybe makes them harder to kill. But I don't know. That's an interesting interesting theory. I don't know if there's been any research on that or not. Not that I know of. It's totally a, a pet hypothesis in my head. So. Yeah, it's fun, it's funny. I was talking uh, about on the episode a while back about a plant called straw colored flat sedge, which uh, popped up in my yard and is one of the few like native grasses that is in my my really you know shaggy lawn and i was like celebrating it because like oh my gosh there's a native species that grew up here yeah uh, but then all the articles about it are about it being invasive in eastern europe yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like no one's talking about it here and I, it was really hard to find much information about it but anyway let's get back to porcelain berry um if the audience doesn't know porcelain berry its leaves look so much like grape leaves it's really annoying because when you're out yeah. in a forest or even in my yard, I'm like, oh, is that a grape, a wild grape? And then you like do a couple tricks and you're like, no, it's porcelain berry. And it's almost always porcelain berry because it is so invasive. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got it in my yard. Yeah. And do you have what in the, do you have it up there in this, in the same area as Monteflora Rose? Or? Luckily, I have not really seen it there. It's, it just seems more like here in the city, it's just the yard vine. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, what's super cool about it, and this is one of those things that like, I, I kind of had just had a lot of like dislike for it because of its invasiveness. And so I wasn't appreciating how cool the berries are. The berries are beautiful, and that's, that's why it was brought here. It was brought here as an ornamental. And it has these really beautiful, it's called porcelain berry because the berries have that like they're not shiny. They're kind of this matte color and they kind of maybe look like porcelain, but then they're a bunch of different colors, which is really, really interesting. They go from green to like yellow to pink to blue, and they can be all different colors on one little uh, peduncle, which is uh, the, the, the flower head, which is, I, I, you know, if you appreciate it for its beauty, it's a really also beautiful plant. Totally. And I think we have to kind of separate the negative views um, for invasives from uh, being against the plant in some deeper way. I mean, yeah. these are all beautiful plants that evolution has created. And it's really just about the the function that they can play if they are t- dumped into an ecosystem that evolved totally without them. Yeah, I, I, really early on, one of my friends on an episode, we were talking about corn and how, you know, corn has spread all over the globe. And there's a lot of way corn's grown that is not necessarily sustainable. But then in that episode, she said, but it's not corn's fault, right? Corn is just being corn. We are the ones who have like interceded with it and made it kind of become the thing it is. And, uh, you know, with invasive, which are a little bit less planned that way, it's similar. Like someone had a decision at some point that they wanted this pretty vine and uh, then it got loose. Um, But talking about the berries, super fascinating. Um, I was like, why are the berries different colors? Because that's pretty unusual. I mean, normally you might have a green berry and then like a red berry, right? They'll be like uh, uh, unripe and a ripe color. But these transition, and I didn't actually even know that, that it was a a transition. I, I thought maybe they're just different colors, but the the color is an indication of the ripeness, hmm. um, and they transfer from green through kind of a pale yellow to a pink to a to a purple blue, and finally to a really like kind of pale blue. And that and so when you're looking at a at a little um, peduncle that has like a bunch of berries and they're all different colors, those are all different stages of ripeness, and that change in color has to do with a change in pH. So mm-hmm. they go from more acidic to uh, less acidic. So they start around uh, pH 4.8, which is pretty acidic, and they end at around 6.5, which is, is nearly neutral. Um, 
which I thought was pretty fascinating. That's actually a pretty big change in pH over the life of something too, because the mm. pH is like a factors of 10, I think, um, with each whole number or something like that. Right. So it goes from pretty acidic to almost neutral, like uh, 4.8 is like like a pretty acidic thing, and uh, 6.5 is basically milk. So that's pretty pretty fascinating. Um, and and so then that made me think, well, there's, there's a num- couple other plants we've talked about the show that, that have a color change of flowers, not berries, based off of um, pH. And also I'm remembering in, in science class, you do these little pH trips, and they often have like a pink or a blue, um, which, I, which I thought was pretty interesting. And so I was looking a little bit about that, um, in porcelain berry, it has to do with, uh, what is called anthocyanin and flavanol co-pigmentation. So anthocyanins are responsible for a lot of coloring in plants, but then the combination of some flavanol chemicals apparently make the colors more intense and makes that color change more specific. I don't really fully understand the science, but that's the best I can do. Um, but the two other plants I was talking about, hydrangeas and Virginia bluebells, yeah. Um, uh, hydrangeas have different color flowers and their flowers are pretty funny because they're only sepals. They're not actually flowers. Um, uh, but their flowers change color depending on the soil pH, which is pretty interesting. And then Virginia bluebells, they start pink and they end blue. And that's also from a change in pH. What's interesting is that the hydrangea colors are opposite. Uh, the, the, the blue, the blue is more acidic and the pink is less. And then bluebells is like porcelain berry where the pink is more acidic and the blue is more basic. Whoa. So I, I don't, some kind of different, it's interesting that the colors are similar, but the chemical process is backwards. Huh? So berries, uh, in the general sense, most of them have the strategy that they advertise themselves when they're properly ripe. Yeah. But but you think here the color is 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 more driven by by this pH mechanism as opposed to an apple that does it in different ways. Yeah, I don't know exactly the different ways where it gets to, you know, I you know I think the anthocyanins or other pigments and fruits just become more predominant. The pigment becomes more predominant. But in this case, the acidity is changing the way the pigment reflects light. Apparently, is my understanding. Uh. Which I think is, is is somewhat different from the, how most plants present their color, and that's why it has this interesting change in colors, which can be pretty different, right? Where you don't normally see that in other. Normally, it's kind of a fade from the green to the red or whatever. Fun yeah, color. no, they're total. The porcelain berries are crazy. Looking. Yeah, yeah. There's something else going on there for sure. Yeah. So that's what it has to do with pH and this this transition um, pH. Now, one thing that I've always heard about porcelain berry is that they're toxic, and you shouldn't eat the berries. I th- apparently that's not true, hmm. but apparently they, they just don't taste like anything. They taste like they taste like nothing slime, I guess is what. So they're just not very appetizing. Um, but I don't. Apparently they won't. I've, I watched a couple of videos of people eating them. I've read about them. I, I, I apparently they are not actually toxic, but no one wants to eat them because they just don't taste like anything. Yeah. So, but you know, fair warning, audience, don't don't eat things unless you know better. But yeah. Um, on the subject of, um, this is where things always get very muddy. I was always trying to find what is the story with this plant in its native range. And that's really always hard to find, uh, particularly I about know. invasives. 
if you only speak English. Same for me. I, I wanted to have some some uh, thing to say about the, the life of the multiflora rose and its beautiful nat- natural habitat, but people don't get outraged when when plants are just doing their normal thing. Totally. So so one, I haven't got very far in this, but I'll get tell you as far as I got. One thing I often try to do is I'll go to the Wikipedia for the plant, and then I will click on the Chinese entry for that plant, and then I will Google Translate the Chinese page. Because on Wikipedia, you know, the content in different languages is not always just direct translations. It's often generated by people who speak that name language natively. Um, and it's also hard because when you start translating Chinese, there's uh, the, there's can be a lot of lost translation. But apparently the... Uh, the genus Ampelopsis in Chinese, those characters translate to snake grape. Hmm. So then I started Googling about snake grape. Um, and there is a lot, I think snake grape is used in some traditional Chinese medicine stuff. And there's there's a lot of stuff about there about it being anti-inflammatory and anti-hepatopic, hepatoxic, so toxic to the liver, right? Maybe. Um and there is a lot of um, scientific articles about people studying it for that, um, but I, that's about as far as I, I got <laughs> with it. That, but, but snake grape is not a name that anybody calls it in any other references to porcelain berry. There's no, and so actually confirming that snake grape was the same plant was a little bit tricky, but I did find some scientific papers that called it snake grape, but also referred to the scientific name. So um, I like snake grape. It's a cool, it's a cool name. Very cool name. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I really appreciate your effort to, you know, understand the plant in its own, on its own terms, in its own place. And and I do think we need to do that more because, I mean, I started off with this kind of war against the invaders kind of narrative. And that's not the end of the story. I mean, we will never be in a place where they are, they are all gone. Mm-hmm. And I do think we have to embrace um uh, of foreign plants in a way. And I just think that uh, we do have to really understand them. And then we do need to be be stewards when, when we can and, and pick our battles a bit and try to create space for the native biodiversity as much as, as we can, but not be sort of, you know, plant xenophobes, if you will, and, uh, and, and just be obsessed with taking out everything that happens to... Um, have been have been introduced. We we need to we need to understand them really well and, and manage it. Right? Uh, very well said, and I think it's a great way to end this segment. But Sasha, do you mind sticking around uh, for the final segment of the show? Absolutely. All right. Sasha, thanks for sticking around. I just wanted to uh, give you the opportunity at the end of the show to talk about the Environmental Investigation Agency where we both work. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, we are uh, an NGO, you know, nonprofit group, an environmental group. It's been around for over 30 years. And uh, we started because it became clear that um, you've got to do some sleuthing to understand what the actual causes are of a lot of environmental destruction that we see, whether it's losing the rainforest or pollution or climate change, you know, who is really behind it? Who uh, or or what what kind of demand, what process? 
So normally it is about demand. We're, we're trying to uncover how consumption around the world sort of expresses itself um, in, in certain places, uh, in, in deforestation and illegal logging, for example, in the trampling of rights of indigenous people that, that are in that forest. So we try to uncover it, and then we try to campaign for the kind of changes that, that are necessary to deal with the scale of the problem. Um, very well said. I think uh, as someone uh, in communications <laughs> for EIA, I, I agree with everything you said. Could you maybe give the uh, uh, audience um, some examples of kind of that work of like what, uh, of what you described, maybe some concrete examples of what EIA has done over the years? Maybe maybe just one. We can go on forever. But just what's the first one that pops into your head? Uh, first one is that just, you know, just because it was a few, a few weeks ago, um, the as, as a result of working with um, indigenous people inside the Amazon to bring really their evidence of incursion, in this case for illegal gold mining and for illegal cattle ranching, to bring that evidence to the places where it's actually responded to, and there are some consequences, um, that can have a big impact. And uh, just a few weeks ago, it because of the, the pressure we were able to create internationally, resulted in the biggest, arguably in history, <clears throat> the biggest enforcement action to sort of crack down on the illegal gold mining ever in in the Amazon. So, so when when we're successful, it's it's creating actual consequences for usually evidence that that local people bring forward. Very good. And then maybe one last thing, because this is something that came to the top of my head when I, well, it's one of the things I learned about when I first started working for EIA that I didn't have any awareness of. Um, and I think I think most people in the audience may not have awareness of is the Lacey Act. And, and what is that? And uh, how has EIA been like involved with that? And kind of yeah, talk about the Lacey Act and what do people need to know about it? And maybe some examples of how it's been implemented or used and, and where EIA fell into that uh, part of the story. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting. It connects our discussion because it is about the movement of plants mm -hmm. and the um, damages that that can cause. Um, um, so uh, the Lacey Act came about um, in the United States by a, a senator about 100 years ago named uh, Lacey, who um, realized in that case that to try to manage the wildlife mostly in the United States, it was almost impossible because you had poachers that would go to one state poach the animals and then sell it in another and be able to escape any consequences by just kind of quickly going over borders and 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 hiding the you know uh, profits of your crime and and so the realization was you have to be able to have consequences all the way down the chain if you want a chance to protect say a wild population of something whether it's uh, white-tailed deer or whether uh, or or whether it is forests is what we figured out and the the law originally didn't really effectively cover cover plants, cover forests. And so we as an NGO called for it to be adjusted, to be amended uh, a little over 10 years ago to be used to battle illegal logging around the world because um, we were able to amend it to say that for the first time, if you import you know, your, your wood your, um, that you might be using for construction or to make furniture or all these vast quantities of wood into the United States, it is illegal to import them if you can show that they were illegally logged. They were stolen from a national park in Madagascar, to pick an actual example of the first case. 
Um, so that gave a chance um, for the, to use the power of the biggest market in the world, the United States, to actually help local people try to enforce their laws as, as far away as the Amazon or the Congo or Madagascar. Very interesting. And can you talk a little bit about maybe that case in Madagascar that you mentioned? Yeah, it was really super interesting. We you know, had the extraordinary success of actually getting this law through, being a big part of that, that, that we thought the world needed. And then just a few months later, really, the first case sort of sort of fell in our lap. We, we did an investigation. Um, I was actually on that one. I was undercover pretending to be a buyer of, of ebony for guitar blanks, they're called, meaning that piece that's in the, the, the makes the, the fingerboard where the frets are on on the guitar. That's, that's always black, if you think about it. It's black because it's ebony. And the best ebony came from Madagascar, which, of course, is an island with huge endemic biodiversity that has you know, evolved on that island for about 100 million years. So choosing that particular tree to make all fretboards in the world out of mm. is you know, a, a tricky situation. And it was, and it led to the last national parks there just being devastated by folks uh, ripping the uh, ebony trees out of there. And with armed with that evidence, we were able to really fundamentally change that trade. And um, uh, there, there was a prosecution of, of Gibson guitar and uh, really, most importantly, the whole market for guitars changed to find more sustainable sources for fretboard. Yeah, and I know that's definitely an ongoing uh, process as well. It's definitely not mm-hmm. perfect, but it was a really interesting case. Nope. And I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes to all stuff about that case and uh, and some more information about guitars and stuff, which is just one of the many um, timber-related things we work on. So anyway, I think, thanks, Sasha, for, for sharing with the audience uh, about the Environmental Investigation Agency. I'll put links in the show notes to the organization, too, and all that stuff if people want to learn more. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining me on this uh, episode of Rootbound. Thanks so much, Steve. It was really fun. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was the Executive Director of the Environmental Investigation Agency in Washington, D.C., Alexander von Bismarck, most people call him Sasha. You can learn more about the Environmental Investigation Agency at eia.org. You can learn more about this podcast, including show notes for this episode and links to everything we talked about at rootboundpodcasts.com. Rootbound is hosted by invasive plant pugilist Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, think about ways you might be able to become a steward of the environment. Nothing is mintier than mint. Ah, so minty.